we're potentially um, leading to a lactose intolerant generation. We're, we're, we're encouraging lactose intolerance by letting that that misperception propagate and by by making more and more lactose-free products available and promoting these lactose-free products, I'm, I'm concerned that we're going to bring up a generation of lactose intolerant people because they're not exercising. That's That's probably a misuse of the term, but not exercising our natural ability to digest. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Fibro Animal Health Corporation, Healthy Animals, Healthy Food, Healthy World, DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Exolete by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Your partner in improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. They provide high-quality economical feed ingredients for ruminants, like their well-researched coated nutrients and fat powders that can support cows with additional available energy, which improves their overall health, productive performance, and your cost efficiency. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Joe McFadden, and I am your host. Joining me today is Dr. Stephanie Clark. Dr. Clark is the Virginia M. Gladney Professor in the Food Science and Human Nutrition Department at Iowa State University. Online at cheeseconnoisseur.com, she is called the Champion of Cheese. And as I understand, Dr. Clark helped reestablish the Iowa State University Creamery, which she now serves as director. Dr. Clark is internationally recognized for her expertise pertaining to dairy foods, processing, safety, and quality. She's also a distinguished educator teaching courses in dairy products and sensory evaluations of foods. Welcome, Stephanie, to the Dairy Podcast Show. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. No problem. All right, to kick this off, you know, I'll ask you a simple, broad question here. Can you tell me a little bit about the pattern of dairy product consumption over the past decade? And where do you think this is going to go in the future? Well, we've seen some positive and negative in a, in a, in a sense. Um, I would say that dairy products overall are in good shape. Uh, people are eating cheese. They like cheese. And they're willing to spend money on good cheese. Uh, but the milk consumption pattern has been going down. And this is largely because of all the competition we have with plant-based products. And uh, partly because there's been this health healthy halo message that's been communicated largely by the media and some misinformation online about uh, environmental sustainability of plant-based products and nutrition of plant-based products. And and there's a lot of misleading information out there. And, and those of us who are on the podcast who are aware of the 13 essential nutrients in, in dairy and milk specifically, uh, we know that great nutrition message. And we know that that it's superior to the plant-based foods, but there's misleading information that gives 
gives folks the impression that the plant-based alternatives are equivalent. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm fully aware of it, uh, being in the dairy industry myself, I, I can completely agree with you. And, you know, to add to this, in one of your recent articles that, that was published in the journal Dairy Science, uh, you state that a decline in fluid milk consumption could be due to a variety of factors. And, and you listed them. They were lifestyle choice, um, bad taste. You could add in misinformation. You also described sort of a perceived or diagnosed cow's milk allergy or lactose intolerance. So I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. Okay. And in one of the questions I have, what is the difference between an allergy to cow's milk and lactose intolerance? Sure. Completely different things. And a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, the allergy is is an allergic response to, to uh, an offending uh, compound. So typically it's going to be protein. Uh, yep, yep. So we produce an allergic reaction, uh, an immune response, a cascade of events that may result in hives, fever, largely those kinds of reactions, whereas lactose intolerance is going to be the inability of a person to fully digest lactose in its intact form. The the human body uh, were born able to digest lactose, which is essentially breaking apart <clears throat> the the compound and being able to utilize that compound for as a nutrient. Uh, but as we get older, our our ability our our ability to break apart and utilize lactose uh, tends to fail, and in some populations more than others. With lactose intolerance, the issue is the lactose, because it's not digested properly, it makes it down into the lower the lower gut. And the bacteria, the natural bacteria that are down there, get this great nutrient and they start digesting it and producing gas. So typically when people have lactose maldigestion or full-blown lactose intolerance, they will get very bloated, gassy, diarrhea, and things like that. So that's uh, the, the, one of the major differences between lactose intolerance and allergy. So I, I, I wanted to make sure that, that that difference was clarified. So the symptoms are different, but people don't always recognize that and they think that any discomfort at all is lactose intolerance. You mentioned di- misdiagnosed, perhaps, or, or perceived, you should say. You actually quoted the word, I'm quoting the word perceived. And so it's possible that people think they have these conditions, but in reality, they don't. So how you have any idea of how common that is? Uh, okay, well, I would say, from what I've read, uh, as we get older and, and in certain populations, there, there's quite a, a big percentage of people, like 60 percent or so who who lose the ability to fully digest so that so there are different extremes of lactose maldigestion or uh, but a lot of people think that if they have a little bit of discomfort after consuming milk then they must be lactose intolerant there's just this uh, this often common common misperception i don't know the extent of the misperception but i get a lot of people who say oh i can't do that taste test because i'm lactose intolerant it's way more people who think they are than actually have been diagnosed with it. It's actually relatively rare to be completely lactose intolerant, but the terminology is used so freely that it it leads it leads to propagating the myth that it, it's it's making people. I think uh, we're, we're 
we're potentially um, leading to a lactose intolerant generation. We're, we're, we're encouraging lactose intolerance by letting that, that misperception propagate and by, by making more and more lactose-free products available and promoting these lactose-free products, I'm, I'm concerned that we're going to bring up a generation of lactose intolerant people because they're not exercising, that's, that's probably a misuse of the term, but not exercising our natural ability to digest. So our, our enzyme breakdown functionality can uh, become tired and less functional if we don't exercise it. If you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. That's, that's kind of what I'm trying to say, that if we, if we don't drink milk, we don't have to use our native enzyme system to break down the lactose and then use it as a nutrient we can potentially lose the ability. And by having so many plant-based alternatives and even promoting our, our lactose-free milk products to people who don't necessarily need lactose-free milk products, we may be promoting or uh, developing a lactose uh, intolerant generation down the line. And I would be very sad to, to see that happen I hope I hope that people keep drinking milk. <laughs> Understood. And so, in addition to this, you know, perceived or, or actual sort of lactose intolerance or presence of a milk allergy, describe sort of this relationship that consumers have between sort of milk flavor uh, and sort of the, whether or not they purchase um, a particular product. So, I wanted to start this sort of questioning with a story that I had recently experienced. I took my uh, my wife and I went to to a restaurant to have some burgers with, with uh, for dinner, and they asked uh, my my sons what they wanted to have to drink, and they they wanted milk, and so they each gave them a bottle of milk, and we sat at the table, fully supportive of that, obviously. But a few moments later, a staff member at the restaurant said, "Wait, uh, that milk is expired. Take these." I turned to my son, but he already drank the entire bottle of milk. Uh, he obviously didn't taste any off flavors, and so. You know, my first part here is, you know, these sell-by dates um, that uh, they're on bottles, I guess. Tell me more about what that date actually means. Great. Wonderful. I'm glad you asked. It is not an expiration date. And that is another misunderstanding that people have. So there's so many mis- misunderstandings in the in the field of dairy dairy foods. So I love to break those myths and misunderstandings. Uh, so expiration date is not the right terminology, but it's used all over the place. Those dates that are on food packages are essentially uh, an indicator of the period in which the, the product, and in this case milk, will be of its best quality. And they are for inventory management in the store. And they are the last day that the product can be sold at full price. They are not an indicator of, of safety. And a lot of people think that it's it means oh after that date it's no longer safe and so there is a lot of food waste and in, in, in fact um dairy products are the third highest discarded wasted food product uh from from a c- consumer standpoint because of misunderstandings largely because of misunderstandings of code dates it's a 27 billion dollar waste or loss of of food the dairy alone 
understood. Is this, is, this, is this more of an issue for maybe fluid milk over cheese, or is it sort of a consistent issue across the food waste spectrum? I would say it's it's mostly fluid milk because people are so averse to a, a bad milk experience. Uh, the number of research products, prod, pardon me, a number of research projects that that I've done with consumers in focus groups have, have re- these projects have really convinced me that people are so um, averse to having a distasteful experience with milk. Once they've had a bad experience with milk, they don't want another bad experience with milk. And so that's largely why they throw it away based on that code date. So I got the, I have, I buy the product, right? I bring it to my house. I put it in my refrigerator. I bought it on a day that had the sell by date on there, the code date. Um, how, I mean, how long does it last? How long can it last? After this? Sure. Sure. Yep. Yep. Those code dates again are an indicator of best quality and the, the processor sets those dates based on experimentation. So they have established a shelf life of approximately, approximately, I'm saying, 21 to 24 days as um, how long that milk is going to maintain its freshness, taste great to the consumer. They're going to set the code shorter than the point where it's going to taste bad because they want their consumers to have a positive experience with their products. They want them to buy them again and again and again. So they're going to make sure that that window is is conservative. So if a producer processor has has discovered that their shelf life is 21 days, let's say, they're going to set the code at maybe 14 so that you have a full week beyond that date that that milk tastes great. If they're if they're uh milk if they're uh if they've discovered that their product tastes great for 28 days, they'll set their code date at 21 to make sure that consumers who buy it on that day have another week of the product tasting great. So it's definitely not expiration. It's it's the maximum best quality. Understood. Now, okay, during that, that, that time or even after a period where the milk doesn't taste good, all right, what, what are some of those flavors that that are sort of picked up as being good flavors or bad flavors? Sure. Well, ideal milk should be quite neutral in flavor, quite delicate. We should get some some dairy fat if we're if we're buying a hopefully a one percent, two percent whole milk, we would get some cream, dairy, dairy fat flavors coming through. If we're buying the lower fat products like skim milk, one percent, two percent, we're we're gonna get more of the brothy uh, protein, skim milk flavors, and some sweetness because of the lactose. So those are those are typical natural milk flavors. Where we start getting away from high quality fresh milk, we're getting into some maybe potentially fruity, fermented kinds of flavors. Uh, those are from natural bacteria that are spoilage bacteria that will grow slowly under refrigerated conditions. They're spore formers. They're bacteria that survive pasteurization. So that's that's really what we're experiencing, um, I would say, most in, in U.S. milk <clears throat> if the milk has been stored too long. We're getting the, the flavors that are produced by bacteria that are thermoduric. They endure the pasteurization temperature but they don't hurt us. They don't harm us. We're killing all the dangerous bacteria with pasteurization. But those that the spore formers will survive 
and produce some aromatic, stinky, unpleasant flavors. Okay. So uh, this, this is a unique question, I think. Um, if you had in a scenario where you get some of these off flavors that are starting to accumulate, and they're starting to be present, uh, but, but the milk's still safe to drink, right? I mean, I, I think about, when I think about flavored milk, I actually think about all these sugar-added drinks, which some of them I actually enjoy. I like the mint milk, okay? It's one of my favorites. Uh, are, are those flavors sort of masking, or could they potentially mask off flavors in milk? Sure. Uh, it is possible that uh, in the chocolate milks, in the mint, mint flavored, the various flavored ones that you can get, that we will potentially not notice off flavors as readily. Yes. They're not put in there to mask those flavors. Those are all made from fresh milk. I want to make that clear. They're not, they're not put in there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure that was clear. But uh, yes, the additional flavors, vanillas, strawberries, chocolates, and other flavors can certainly mask some off flavors, but the spoilage can still happen. And what people will more likely notice is maybe some curdling, some some flocculation, uh, some ropiness. Sometimes you can get ropey. Bacteria can produce an exopolysaccharide and make the milk kind of stringy. So they might notice those kinds of defects or bitterness can also form. Bitterness is a breakdown of the proteins into, into peptides and amino acids and you get um, kind of a throbbing or uncomfortable feeling in the back of your throat potentially when you're drinking the product. So those things might show up more readily in products that are flavored, whereas in the white milk, people are going to say, oh, it's sour. That's that's the most common thing you'll hear people say, but that's not actually the most common defect anymore because we we when we pasteurize, we're killing the lactic acid bacteria. So those would have to get in as a post-pasteurization contaminant, most likely. So usually these days, we're getting the fruity fermented kinds of off flavors. Okay, interesting. Mosquitoes and other kinds of uh, spoilage bacteria. You, know, you also th- you a lot of your research program focuses on how packaging could potentially modify milk flavor. You know how does packaging influence not just milk flavor but, but perhaps the purchasing behavior of the consumer? Oh yes, both. Uh, consumers really like those gallon jugs, those HDPE high density polyethylene gallon jugs. They really like those because, well, partly, again, through interviews and focus groups, partly because uh, value-wise, the milk is cheaper, right? They get a gallon, they pay less per ounce for the milk. So they like those. Uh, and they're convenient. They can hold on to it. One of the other things they like about those is they can see how much milk is left without having to take it out of the fridge. Honest to goodness. That's part of the reason why they like those those see-through ones better than the white pigmented uh, light block packages. So people are funny. They, they, they want to quickly see how much milk they have. This is the answer we keep getting. Uh, but when light can get through, light can actually damage the, the, the fat and, and protein. So we get what's called light oxidized off flavor or sunlight, sunlight milk. There's some there's some different terminology that's used, but the most common terminology is light oxidized flavor, and it's it's uh, so familiar to people, so familiar now that they don't know anything's wrong. But when milk doesn't have that, oh, it's so delightful, so fresh, refreshing, clean, delicate, wonderful. Uh, so the light penetrates and triggers a 
uh, autoxidation reaction, free radicals are formed, and we get formation of aldehydes and ketones. We're basically changing the shape of the fat. So it tastes like, well, cardboard is a word that's been used. Plastic's a word that's been used. Uh, chemical kind of flavors are coming through. Now, to, to, to study this, you know, I, I was reading your paper, and we get a little technical for our audience, but you're using a scientific approach called experimental auctions to sort of better define consumer preference. And this is the first time I've actually heard about this, and I've been in science now for a while. Uh, explain to me what an experimental auction is and how did that help you better understand sort of consumer preference for milk and various packaging? Sure. Auctions are kind of fun, actually. Um Perhaps people are familiar with the, the silent auction kind of thing where you write a bid down on a piece of paper and somebody bids higher and somebody else bids higher and somebody else bids higher. And you can see it on the paper. And so you're, you're always knowing what somebody else is bidding. And so you can keep bidding higher if you really want the item. Well, in, in research, experimental auctions is a little bit different. There's some similarities, but uh, the, the main difference is that we're doing these, we're doing our bidding in private. So let me set up a little bit of a scenario here. Um, if you were to be given the choice of 1% milk or whole milk, both in paperboard and in uh, HDPE, okay? So you have four options, 1% in HDPE, 1% in paperboard, uh, whole milk in HDPE, whole milk in, in uh, paperboard, right? So you got four options. We say to you, how much is this product worth to you? Okay, you've got a, a half gallon of each. How much would you pay right now for that product? And you write down on your piece of paper how much you would bid on each of those products. And then you turn that into us. In the meantime, we we have a little hat and we are shaping up the paper and we pick one of those four out of the hat. And we pull that out and we find out, okay, that is the, the skim milk in HDPE. All right, so skim milk in HDPE is the, is the product that we are going to uh, sell right now. So we look at everybody's bid. How much are they willing to pay for 1%? HDPE half gallon of milk and we 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 write all of the the bids down from highest to lowest okay so we've got that all organized highest bid to lowest bid and some people will bid zero because they're not at all interested in one percent HDPE some people may bid four dollars six dollars two dollars one dollar right so we got this whole range well also in the meantime, we, we, we have to know how many people are in the room. So if we've got a dozen people in the room, we're not going to only have one person win the auction because the stakes aren't high enough. People won't feel like they have a chance of winning, so they won't take it seriously. So we do a, a half-price auction. We'll call it a half-price auction. That means, sorry, um, that's confusing, but... Uh, Half is the size of the room, not the price of the product. So half price auction would be, if there are 12 people in the room, the sixth price, so the sixth highest price bid will be the winning bid. All right? So if it was 
Somebody said five. Then somebody said um, four. Somebody said three. Somebody said two. Somebody said one. And then the next person was 50 cents. 50 cents. Everybody who bid higher than that 50 cents, everybody who bid higher will pay 50 cents. Okay? So the, the sixth price, the half price, the sixth price, half the size of the room, dictates the price that is paid by the people who value that product more than the, the sixth price. It's pretty complicated to explain in a podcast, but it's a really effective way to find out what people, how much people value something. And what did you learn? And what did because, you learn? Because they, they, they're actually going to spend their money. That day, right then and there, you say, okay, everyone who valued it more than that 50 cents will pay 50 cents. They, they win it. They win it because they valued it enough. So they're actually spending their real money. And this particular method is better than the hypothetical, how much would you pay for? Because when somebody says, oh, I'd pay $5, it's not realistic because they're not actually committed to paying that $5. And when you get them actually into the store, they won't really do it. This, this tells us, it gives us, we take all, the average of all the numbers above that 50 cents. We're able to take the average of that number and say, these people valued it. They really were willing to pay to get that product. And we were able to, 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 to see if the value for the 1% HTPE is equal to or greater than that of the uh, the 1% in, in paperboard, the, in the, two, in the, the whole milk in HDPE and the whole milk in paperboard. So, so we're what, able to- what was the take-home message regarding when you use this approach to, 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 to understand the influence of packaging? Sure. Several things. Uh, in that particular packaging study, we were able to learn that people's decision-making about what they buy is is largely based, primarily based on their interest in the fat level of the milk. So that fat level that they choose is is their, their driving force for what they purchase at the store. Brand plays a role, but uh, it's not quite as important. Price, price also influences that, and code date influences that as well. They're, they're willing to uh, change brands to get a code date that, that assures them that they're going to have that milk in their fridge longer. Yeah, people, people are making choices. It's, it's, a, it's, a complex, it's a complex decision that they make when they're in that store. Yeah. And not every single person. There's some people who just grab it and go. But there, but there are a, a, a large ma- majority of people are really committed to reaching for code dates that are going to give them more more time with that product in their fridge with before it goes bad. You know, part of your part of your paper also described um, the effects of, of labeling, and you had a label that you tested, and, you, you, and it's called Certified Fresh Taste. Was was the label that you evaluated? And uh, can you explain more about what you were trying to test here and what was the purpose of this? Sure. In that particular study, we were we were looking at the effect of of light oxidation on consumer perception. Uh, were they noticing light oxidized off flavor? Did it influence their their bids when they participated in an auction? Would they bid more? Would they value the milk more 
if it didn't have light oxidized flavor. So several things came out of that. First of all, they didn't notice a difference between light oxidized milk and not light oxidized milk. They didn't really notice a difference so much. Some people did, but for the most part, overall, there was not a significant difference in liking of milk, whether it was oxidized or not. <clears throat> so bids were pretty similar. However, when we gave them an educational message about light oxidation and explained some of the chemistry, very basic terms, some of the chemistry behind it, and how light can also uh, reduce the amount of riboflavin in the milk. And we talked about the light block packaging, how preventing the light from getting into the product uh, would, would prevent uh, the, the light oxidized off flavor. So we gave them a, a short lesson. We had them taste that milk as well, the, the light block milk. And again, they, they, they didn't necessarily notice that it tasted any different than, than the other milk. But then we slapped a label on, a very simple, rudimentary label that said certified taste, fr certified fresh taste. It had a blue check mark on a, on a light, sorry, light blue background with a red check mark and said certified fresh taste. Simple label. We put it on the light block packaging. We put it on the, the paperboard packaging. And then the, the HDPE did not have that seal. Then we, um, we had them bid on the, the products again through the auctions process. They bid more for the certified fresh taste product each time, even though they had just tasted the products and didn't notice a difference, but just because we had certified it as having a fresh taste. They believed, they believed the marketing. They believed that, that little check mark. They were willing to pay more for that check mark. Yep. Even though they could not tell the difference in the flavor. Yeah, labels can be quite powerful. I mean, can you provide some other examples of labels that you see out there currently on the market that you think are highly influential in influencing a sort of consumer behavior? Well, the organic, the organic packaging, they've got some really pretty, pretty packaging, nice labeling. Uh, those are appealing and they have a lot of verbiage on there about about uh, about the environment, and so that those can be attractive. But I, I will say, some of the biggest impact is simply the code date. Simply the code date, and and it is confusing to people because they don't. I I, I think I mentioned before uh, they don't necessarily know what it means, uh, but they they are driven by that. They think it's an expiration, and they will reach in back. About 75% of the people will reach in back to get a shelf, a, a code date that is uh, further away uh, so that they, so that milk will last longer in their refrigerator. Uh, some of these are off flavors in general, or maybe specific off flavors that could potentially develop in milk. Do these same potential flavors or similar flavors develop plant-based milk alternatives? Mm. I have not studied the sensory aspects of plant-based alternatives, but certainly plant-based alternatives can have microorganisms that can cause similar and different off flavors. They can be they can be uh, contaminated at any at any stage as well. You know, I, I 
I cannot not discuss this next comment that I have uh, regarding plant-based milk alternatives versus cow's milk. Uh, last month, the FDA provided draft labeling recommendations for plant-based milk alternatives to inform consumers. I believe they're accepting feedback. And I, and I want to quote the FDA news release here. The draft guidance labeling of plant-based milk alternatives and voluntary nutrient statements, guidance for industry, recommends plant-based milk alternative product that includes the term milk in its name. For example, soy milk or almond milk, and that has a nutrient composition that is different in milk, include a voluntary nutrient statement that conveys how the product compares with milk based on the USDA Food Nutrition Service fluid milk substitutes nutrient criteria. When I heard this, and I actually read it and I did hear it, um, I was under the impression that this is one voluntary, that they provide this information to make a comparison between cow's milk and these alternative beverages, and that they could still use the word milk in the name of these products. What are your thoughts about this? That's my understanding as well, that they are allowed to use that term. And it's disheartening. It's disheartening because there's we've, we've been, I say we, the dairy industry, I consider myself part of the dairy industry, have been fighting this for for a very long time and the asking that the FDA stand behind the legal definition in the pasteurized milk ordinance that milk is the normal lacteal secretion practically free of colostrum obtained by the complete milking or one of more or of one or more cows i mean we we want them to stand behind that for that milk term and protect that term uh so it is it is disheartening is really the the my feeling um, and putting a disclaimer on there that's voluntary, I, 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 I'm afraid it's not going to happen. I, I just, I, it's, it's not enough teeth. It's not enough teeth. There, it's, 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 it's. A Ho- hopefully, these, I mean, this is, I believe, a, just a draft, and hopefully, if there's a large, large enough voice, I think maybe these things could be amended. Yeah, I think the Dairy Pride Act. I think they're still trying to pull the Dairy Pride Act forward and and prevent this this from going through okay i would transition a bit now and talk about some of your current research that i know you're excited to discuss and um you know you're currently investigating the impact of a variety of educational messages about dairy products we touched on that a little bit here uh with the goal to increase purchasing consumption of dairy products by what you call like adequate dairy consumers um use that specific term inadequate dairy consumers what does that mean Sure. Well, we uh, screened thousands of people uh, in Iowa and Kansas to, to, to find specifically people who were consuming fewer than the three to five a day dairy recommended in the guidelines for healthy Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we wanted to understand better what kind of message might resonate with them and encourage them to buy and consume more dairy. So we investigated, well, first of all, we had four, four treatment groups. One was uh, a control. One was uh, the message about um, the not, at that point we were saying nine essential nutrients in dairy. We've since realized with uh, with more research and changing uh, recommended daily uh, allowances or recommended daily intakes, that there are 13, 
uh, dairy milk is a, a, a good to excellent source of 13 uh, essential nutrients, but at the time it was nine. So we had a message about nine essential nutrients. We had a, a message about prebiotics and probiotics in dairy foods. And then we had a message about lactose maldigestion. So the the control message that everybody got was basically about reading nutrition labels, reading ingredient labels and nutrition facts panels, because we had to have them understand something about nutrition to understand dairy nutrition concepts. So everybody got that message. And then one out, one out of four groups got the, additionally got the nine essential nutrients, infographic and lesson, another uh, one out of three Sorry, one out of four groups got the prebiotics and probiotics message, and one out of four groups got the <clears throat> lactose maldigestion educational message. We discovered that all messages were effective in increasing these inadequate dairy consumers' purchasing and consumption of dairy when we followed up with them a month later. So they all did increase which was a great finding. We were thrilled that they actually increased their purchasing and consumption of milk, yogurt, cheese, and ice cream. Milk, milk in particular. So that was, that was nice. But they still were inadequate dairy consumers. So it, even though they, they increased by 20%, they were already so low that it didn't actually bump them up to become three to five servings a, a day consumers. They just they bumped up a little bit. Right. So um, what that is telling us is that any education about dairy nutrition concepts can help. It can potentially make a difference. Explain to me how you educate a consumer. How do you do this? Because it's a lot of science you're talking about here. And in this research setting, in this particular research setting, we actually did the research during the pandemic, which was quite a challenge. But um it's quite interesting that I've noticed since we're doing a, a, pa a bunch of focus groups right now, we get about 50% turnout right now. During the pandemic, we had about 75% turnout. <laughs> I think people just really wanted to get out and do stuff. So essentially, these focus groups are educational sessions. We bring them in and we we talk about dairy. I mean, that's it, it's an opportunity. I love teaching, so it was an opportunity to teach them. And we had a, 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 a script that we followed because we wanted to treat every single focus group the same. And we did these focus groups both in Iowa and in Kansas. So we really needed to have a very strict uh, script. Okay. So, you know, these approaches work well for sort of a research environment. But how do you sort of translate this to have broader impact across the U.S., you know, outside of your, your research arena? Thank you for asking. Uh, we developed infographics and uh, I didn't set up my computer to, sh to show you, like to share my screen or anything. But if you do want to see any of these infographics, let me know. So we have one about how to read, how to read a, a food label. And it was, it was, uh, we created it to be like an ice cream, ice cream label. Um, we created another one that is about the nine essential nutrients in dairy, another one about pro prebiotics and probiotics, another one about lactose maldigestion. So every lesson had an infographic. Based on what we learned from our intervention, 
we learned what things we could do to make those stronger, more effective. So we can improve those infographics and then those infographics can be dispersed. They can be distributed, shared. Uh, they can be posted online. They can, they can be used, right? So, that, so they're physical things that can be used or shown on, online. So those are educational opportunities. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt, Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6% while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Exelete offers a new approach that is build-effective and the ZDUs. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Yeah, I thought, so is this is something you might be able to spread through social media, perhaps? I mean, Sure, sure. That kind of thing could be done. Uh also, some of the verbiage that we include that that we found to be effective could be utilized in on packaging or in in messaging um, on commercials or in educational messages in schools or whatever. So whatever, they, and they don't have to stop with the research itself. They can go beyond. Ideally, some people will use. What so we've where, learned. Where do consumers obtain most of their sort of knowledge or education about sort of a dairy product? Is it on the package? Is it social media? Is it, I don't know, TV? I don't know. Tell me. Hey, it's great that you asked that uh, because we are currently running a, a study now, again, focus groups. And one of our, our survey questions is asking them, where do you, where do you get information about dairy? And one of the options, of course, is I, I don't seek information about dairy, right? So that's, that's one of the, the options. So we're going we're gonna to try to find that out. We, we don't know for sure. And I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, at least I haven't recently read something that says where most people find that information. But I once asked this to my students as well. And I asked them the question, where do you obtain most of your information about the food you eat? Most of them said that mom. Um, so <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. One of the options was friends, family, blog. Yeah, yep, yep. So those are some of the things they can choose in the drop-down menu. Just thinking about the you know your future in terms of research and your your, your where do you want to go next in terms of your um, your research program? What's the next big question you want to tackle? Well, I I want people to value dairy. I want to combat the the perception, the misperception that that animal agriculture is is negative to the environment. I want to help promote the the goodness of dairy and holistically uh, from from field to table. So more more consumer work in that direction, uh, environmental sustainability kinds of concepts related to dairy is kind of where I'm heading now. Okay, very cool. In terms of that environmental component. You know, if you had a chance to speak to the average Joe, um, what and what would you tell them to help them reduce their dairy food waste? Well, I want people to understand that dairy farms are working hard to recycle 
that uh, they're not just consumers of water. I mean, there's definitely a lot of water usage, but we're actually recycling that water. They're not just producers of methane. They're they're uh, recycling uh, using anaerobic digesters and and capturing that methane and using it as natural gas. Uh, so I'm trying I'm trying to get that message out. Okay, very good. Um, all right, very important. And one final question It's probably the most important question of the entire podcast. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream at the creamery? Oh, my favorite is our original flavor called Legacy. It is a Scotcheroo ice cream. And I realize, I realize a lot of people might not know what a Scotcheroo is because I didn't know until I moved to Iowa. But it is a peanut butter butterscotch uh, Rice Krispies treat with chocolate on top. So this is peanut butter butterscotch ice cream with chocolate covered rice crisps in it. And it's recognizing alumni from Iowa State, Mildred Day, who is one of the creators of Rice Krispies treats. And George Washington Carver, who is famous for his peanuts research, both who went to Iowa State. Can't, I mean, I want to have some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sounds delicious. One of these days, I will certainly try it. I look forward to it. I want to thank Dr. Stephanie Clark uh, for attending the Dairy Podcast Show. Thank you, Dr. Clark, for your time. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and fun. All right. I appreciate it. And I also thank our audience at the Dairy Podcast Show for tuning in. Um, stay tuned for future episodes. Uh, thank you and have a good day.